Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of April, 2023. Welcome. Episode 95 of this podcast series, the concept of which is to just have a brief chat about what comic books I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats, which should make this more or less the books I read during April. These books are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost them on my Facebook and Twitter, so you can find those. But those posts are not spoilers for the podcasts, since those are just lists. And here, a little more review, a little more critique, and a little more discussion. But first... A little feedback. Darren Sutherland, the lesser two-fifths of the Rad Adventures Network, commented on one of the global comics I read last month. I used to get Manga Blast long ago, and Oh My Goddess and 3 by 3 Eyes were favorites, and Shadow Star was good fun too. Thank you, Darren. Yes, like I said, Oh My Goddess was pretty solid in the two issues that I read. And the better three-fifths of that team also chipped in with her thoughts. Fun manga titles here. Brings back good memories, Ruth. Ed Moore suggested that The Tick would be a good title to read for Hashtag Humor Comics Month. Oh, spoilers, but sorry, Ed. I don't have any issues of The Tick in my collection, and I didn't see any on Hoopla, so... I have failed this podcast. Nonetheless, an excellent suggestion, Ed. Thank you. Sir Luke wrote in on my comments on the issue of Wonder Man involving movie producers as bad guys. Professor, regarding evil Hollywood types in comics... I have to say, at least in Wonder Man, that's pretty much the title's bread and butter. So in that case, at least, it's understandable. (laughs) And social media support for last episode came from Pat from the Longbox Crusade, Ed Moore from the Superman Super Show, Chris from the Spiritual Lens, Vic and Phoenix, Clinton from Fan Film Fridays, Shane Kelly, Karen from Between the Pages, James from Karen, Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, Bill from the Bat Pod, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, Chris, the Charlton Hero, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Jeremiah, the Notorious JJG, Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange, Robert Ludwig, the Most Sane Man Among Us, Chris Lydon Seven, Stephen E. Schned, Chris from Professor Frenzy, Mr. Underscore Scott, Old School Ross, fresh off his victory in the relatively geeky NCAA Brackets Challenge, and Derek, Derek W.C. from the history of comics on film. And now... On to the issues I read last month, and as I do on this show, I'm categorizing the books that I read. And first are those that I read specifically for podcast appearances, the homework books. 
And for Corbin, 191 out a few weeks ago, and 192 out a few weeks from now, I read Nightwing, 128, and Shazam, 26. And comics I read to listen along with podcasts. There are a good number of these most months because of the DC Infinite app. And I love following along with comic book podcasts when I have the chance, and the app gives me more chances to have that chance. And thank you, DC Comics-themed podcasters, such as the Lady Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower, who, along with her crew, on episodes 201 and 202 of Feathers and Foes, I read Birds of Prey 3 and 4 from the New 52 era, and a listen along with the Batman Family Reunion Show. I read Batman Family 16, in which Babs and Robin team up to take on the five-way villain, a man upset because he lost a rigged election. Ooh, topical. And a fun backup featuring Man Bat, Jason Bard, and a very, very pregnant Francine. And to follow along with the latest triumphant return of From Crisis to Crisis, co-hosted by our great good friend, Podcasting's Michael Bailey, for their coverage of the Final Night event, I read Final Night, 1 through 4. And to follow along with Billy D's excellent show, The Brave and the Bob, episodes 20 and 22, I read The Brave and the Bold 84 on World's Finest 252. Brave and the Bold... That was a wild Batman and Sergeant Rock team-up from 1969, while the world's finest story told of a blackmail scheme hitting both Gotham and Metropolis. That issue also had a creeper story, did you hear that, Ange? And others, as it was a giant-sized issue. And I also read Justice League Quarterly number 4, a giant-sized issue featuring the Injustice League trying to go straight, and that not really working out. An ice and guy going out on a date, and that not really working out either. This was to follow along with the Irredeemable Shag's Justice League International blah 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 podcast. And no, I don't know why I do that. On to new comics. Right off the shelves, and we do actually have a few this month of the digital variety, courtesy of the Hoopla app. We have two series that are wrapping up. From Boom, we have the final issue of the Keanu Reeves comic book, Berserker, number 12, which does bring the series to a conclusion while, of course, offering potential for more stories. Some questions are answered, but not quite enough to fully satisfy me. Maybe that's what the movie or upcoming TV series will do. There was certainly a lot of action, like I said, a conclusion, and then a denouement. All in all, this asks the question of what it means to live forever, what the consequences are, and whether that gift can be stolen or taken, or maybe lain down freely. This was a very, very fast read. Even a 40-page issue like this one. So I am glad that I read them all free on the Hoopla digital app. And I am intrigued by the potential future of the property. 
And from Titan Comics, also a final issue, 8 Billion Genies, number 8, which tells stories from the last eight centuries since G-Day, the day when all 8 billion people on the planet got their own genie, along with the accompanying wish. As this issue starts, we're down to about 360 million humans left on the planet, and only two genies. From their conversation, the genies and their interaction, we learn a lot of backstory to G-Day and the cyclical nature thereof, ending with spoilers, the last wishmaker making the last wish. How will it end? Well, I can't really say, other than to say that this was an interesting way to end a series, and I would say an effective way. This was one of the most interesting series of the last year or so, And if you like stories without superheroes, but with interesting human beings and a big idea in terms of fantasy or sci-fi, I'd recommend it. And on to the general comic reading that I did. Sir Manuel Carmone of Truthful Comics sent out a Christmas package, which included a whole bunch from a DC series from about a decade ago. The New 52 Future's End, issues 2, 3, 7, 9, 10, 11, 13, 15, 16, 17, and 19. Now here's the thing. Me and M, we appreciated the New 52. There was a lot about it that we liked. But on the other hand, we were very particular about what we liked, what we read. All-Star Western... Demon Knights, Justice League Dark, those three stand out. I also liked Wonder Woman, Aquaman, I, Vampire, Frankenstein, Agent of Shade, Resurrection Man, and some others. Green Arrow was okay. But there are a lot of titles that did not interest me one bit, like Justice League and Savage Hawkman, Red Hood, Nightwing, Red Lanterns, OMAC, Stormwatch, Deathstroke, lots of titles that didn't interest me, lots of characters from this era. So for a crossover like this, like Future's End, it does contain, obviously, lots of characters from lots of titles that weren't at the top of my list. So reading this was a matter of trying to make sense of parts of it, being bored by the OMAC and Stormwatch parts of it, and really getting sentimental almost, and enjoying the Frankenstein Agent of Shade parts. That, by the way was a totally underrated title. And it was good to visit with Frank and his team again. Good to see this version of Constantine, Wonder Woman, and others as well. I'm glad I read you know, this far of it, because it's certainly something I never would have picked out, uh, picked up on my own. My favorite single bit of this is Big Barda, when she's living undercover, which, as it was pointed out, in the books, is a little bit difficult for Barda, given her size, living up to the big part of her name. Anyway, at one point, she revealed that the code name that she was working under, Jane Kirby. And I admit, that worked for me. Manuel also sent the all-artistic The Superman Gallery from 1993, some beautiful artwork, from the old days of Joe Schuster, and the Fleischer Studios through Kurt Swan and Kurt Schaffenberger, up to Dan Jurgens and Jerry Ordway. Fun book to just keep flipping through. 
My favorites were anyone with the mullet. <laughs> no, not really. I just said that to get the attention of podcasting's Michael Bailey. And Team Titans, number one. Even though this pretended to be a first issue, it was actually part three of nine of Total Chaos, focusing on Lord Chaos and all his chaos-making chaos. And also X-Men Unlimited 24, Wolverine and Cecilia Reyes against the Silver Samurai. Now, you know me. I almost never mention art in my comments because my eyes just aren't attuned to art enough, unless it really stands out. And boy, does the art in this stand out, and not in the best way. And it's not even the 90s coloring or the extreme bodies. This was just ugly figure work. It just, wow. From Sir Iowa's Joe, I read Marvel Comics 1001, a celebration of Marvel's 80th anniversary, if you count a certain way. This was a collection of one-page quote-unquote stories starring a range of Marvel characters. The Daredevil one was beautiful, I thought, and of course, it had a darkness-to-light vibe. The one about how the spider characters are starting to run out of good spider-themed names also was good. And Captain America in 1941 telling kids to not save their comics because they're worthless after you read them anyway. Contribute them instead to the paper drive? That was genius. And Ron, just Ron, sent a very strange one in his Christmas care package, direct from the creative minds of the Consumer Products Safety Commission. Sprocket Man, an in-depth and detailed discussion of bicycle safety. The best parts were probably Watch out for opening car doors, followed closely by rear baskets and backpacks are much safer than front baskets. Riveting stuff. Thank you, Ron. And a couple that almost tipped the scale into Humor Comics Month, but I just couldn't bring myself to put Deadpool 31 and 33 into that later section of the episode. Yes, there were funny moments. My favorite bit was Deadpool riding in a car with an agent, and she knows something is going wrong with him because it's been something like three minutes since he said anything. But the overall storyline was less than funny. A secret invasion. Cap being a bad guy, Deadpool tasked to kill Coulson. That's all pretty intense. There were good bits of humor spread throughout. But these were much more serious Deadpool issues. And from Sir Luke Giaconetti, a book from just about a year ago, Timeless, that led into the 2023 Marvel storylines. Luke pretty much knew this book was for me, and I completely understood why he sent it to me. All by the time I got to page four, which featured a scene of Kang and a university professor discussing Dr. Doom. Come on, they made this comic for me, right? 
there's no other excuse. They also made it for Luke as well, as he is a big fan of Kang. And as a follow-up to the buddy cop issues of of the Doctor Doom title from 2020, this worked pretty well. Luke also sent the original Ghost Rider 6, reprinting The Coming of Witch Woman. Gary Friedrich put together an interesting story here, in which Johnny's main squeeze, Roxanne Simpson, has been bit by a poisonous snake, and the only anti-venom is with the native tribe nearby. A woman in the tribe hears about this and takes her own motorcycle to deliver the serum to the hospital, to which Ghost Rider has taken Roxanne, only for them all to discover that the native woman has been tasked by the devil himself to destroy Ghost Rider. Oh, the irony. And an issue sent in by Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, that sent me to Hoopla to find more. Solar Flare, one through six. Earth is struck by a massive... That's right, Solar Flare. And all the power goes out, and then all our basic humanity goes out. Or with most post-apocalyptic stories, maybe our basic humanity comes out even more strongly. This trade didn't even wrap up any storylines, which was kind of a bummer. Overall, the story was well done, but not particularly original or groundbreaking. And another batch sent in by Kirk, which I think wraps up what he sent me a while back from this title, Nexus 25-31. through In these issues, Steve Rude goes on vacation for a few months, so we get some different looks for Mike Barron's scripts. Since I last grabbed these issues, I read Mike Barron's Nexus prose novel, which was pretty solid for a comic book novel, by the way. So Nexus was doing pretty well sales-wise and certainly in terms of critical acclaim, and they were able to get some top-line fill-in artists, Mike Mignola, Rick Veach, and JLGL. Now, they all bring their own styles to this, And after 25-plus issues of Steve Rude setting the template so specifically, some of those others took a second to get used to. In terms of storyline or plot, a handful of these issues involved Nexus's Uncle Lathe, an anti-technology crusader. His current anti-technology crusade is aimed at Space Station Stacy, which plans to exploit a nearby gravity well as a source of cheap energy needed to expand the interstellar republic known as the web. But there are many fears as to what will happen when they turn on their energy machine. Good stories and the overall concept of Nexus, of the man tasked by a higher force to assassinate mass murderers, it's just a really strong high concept and makes for some really intriguing stories. From Pulp Reality, Sunbaker 3, an anthology from Image, I have a shaky relationship with anthologies, but 48 pages for 50 cents is about the point at which I pull the trigger. This one, okay stories, I guess, but the weird coloring I just couldn't really get past, not really worth my two quarters. Also from there, Legacy, number one, a mediocre comic from 1993. 
from something called Majestic Comics from just a couple hours down the road from me in Cincinnati. I said mediocre, but let me put it this way. It's exactly what you'd expect from a first issue from 1993 from a comic company based in Cincinnati. And from Rob Liefeld, Maximum Press, Battlestar Galactica, The Enemy Within, number one. I firmly and 100% blame Shag for this. We're doing an episode recently praising the Marvel adaptations of Battlestar Galactica. So I was excited to pick up this comic. This one featured the original characters from the 70s run, and I confess that I'm more familiar with the reboot version. Maybe that was part of what was happening here in terms of my inability to get into the story. But more than that, I just don't think this held together very well, and the 90s-style art mm, didn't really help me. From the three-for-a-dollar box at GalaxyCon, Marvel Adventures number 1 from 1997, a story of the Hulk told in the animated style, for a stripped-down, simplified, kid-friendly comic story, there's a ton of stuff crammed into this. We have Banner. Rick Jones, Betty Ross, and her dad, the general, and the leader, and the abomination. Yikes! They definitely did not scrimp on story. I will give them that. I also picked up three issues of a Dynamite series written by Peter Milligan, Terminal Hero, one through three, in which a research doctor discovers he has a fast-moving brain cancer with the only possible treatment having been developed by his best friend, but the treatment has super-powered side effects and not the good ones. The doctor ends up killing that best friend, then becoming an agent-slash-assassin of the government in exchange for, you know, covering up that whole killing the best friend thing. And then because Peter Milligan... It gets very, very strange. I'm not sure how much I liked this. I think I did. It is certainly different. It's certainly original. And in comics, sometimes that really goes a long way. And back from when World's Greatest Comics had quarter bins, the glory days, I nabbed a coverless comic from before I was born. Metal Men 14... Wacky story about the team battling chemo. But the metal men have had their heads put on the wrong bodies because 1965. But the key issue that I had with this issue, you can help me out, lovely listeners here, the special part that Doc Magnus invented to make the metal men more human, are they responsometers or responsometers? I have a strong preference for one of those, but I don't want to bias the responses. So let me know. Responsometers? Responsometers. Also, Silver Surfer 63 from 1992, taking place in the Nether Realm, where Marvel, Captain Marvel, teams up with Silver Surfer in a battle against the dead. But the most interesting part of this issue. Published right at the top of the boom, the boom before the bust, was the circulation statement. 
because they were increasing the numbers of issues printed, hitting 325,000 for this statement. And the sell-through was increasing as well, actually selling over a quarter million of those issues. Both the sheer numbers and that stunning 75% sell-through are crazy numbers. Numbers that, well, that couldn't last forever. And that is a lesson in all booms, in all financial bubbles. Whether the underlying asset be tulips, stocks, pogs, subprime mortgages, NFTs, crypto, or comic books, all financial bubbles pop. Also picked up Avengers Spotlight 32, starring Hawkeye, Clint, and Bobby Morse versus the Terminizer. Why, yes, it was an issue from 1990. How did you know? And from the free stack at Laughing Ogre, a prayer for the hunted free preview issue. This is a good way for an independent book to make itself known, I think, via the free preview. This is an early 1970s story, Vietnam era, Cold War. And it is a spy story, a Soviet wants to defect to the West. And it's going to be a very complicated operation for him to do so. So not a bad start at all. Also, from Free Comic Book Day 2021, from Paper Cuts, the first issue of The School for Extraterrestrial Girls, a YA story based on, well, School for Extraordinary Girls. The title pretty much sums it up, I think. And from Hoopla, I more or less pretty much finished up this title, Postal. 21 through 24. There is a supersized issue 25, and then a few spin-off, one-off stories. But the main story about the town of Eden being kept off the grid, and of the family in charge, and the FBI, and the mail carrier with Asperger's, and the waitress with the heart of gold, and a dangerous past. All of that is, or at least it seems, pretty much wrapped up. Very good and I will continue along in this world at some point and officially, formally wrap it all up. And to mention a character that I will be reading a bunch of over the next few months, because I will be presenting at the Spider-Man conference at Bowling Green in September. So I plan to flip through a ton of Spidey comics, and I will even read some of them, like these two trades from the public library. Amazing Spider-Man, 70 through 80, covering the final story of the Nick Spencer run, What Cost Victory. Spencer's run ended with an oversized issue 74, which managed to retcon some of the more unsavory aspects of recent Spidey lore. Norman Osborn fathering children with, uh, let's just not go there. Turns out it was clones! which as much trouble as the Clone Saga caused for Spidey, it did give every future Spider-Man writer a built-in out for a past storyline that just needs changing. It was clones! Similarly, this storyline featured a battle between Doctor Strange and Mephisto, which also did some retconning to the past. 
So between clones and Mephisto, I guess, pretty much anything in Spidey's past stories can be changed at the whim of a future writer, for better or worse. Then we have 75 through 80, and that trade also had the 2021 Free Comic Book Day issue in 78.bey. These were all part of the Beyond saga, which seemed a bit of a mess trying to make sense of it. The Beyond had a few interesting bits, but the rotations of writers and artists, at least at this start of that storyline, it just made for, like I said, a bit of a mess. And here's where we'd usually talk about some of the comic books that I read for kids, but since this is April, all of those kids' books will be discussed after the break as part of the Humor Comics Month discussion. And we'll get to that right after this promo break. You're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast. Is an exploration of the DC Comics character, the first superhero to use the name of the vigilante. First published in Action Comics 42 in September 1941, Amid Comics' golden age and carried as a continuous feature, during those years, the Vigilante was also a member of the Seven Soldiers of Victory and was one of the first DC heroes to appear on the cinema screen in his own serial. Reappearing in the Bronze Age, the Vigilante had a 1970s renaissance throughout the DC Universe. Greg Saunders, the Prairie Troubadour, leads a double life as a modern country and western musician while also delivering justice throughout North America as a mass crime fighter, using the tactics and weapons of his rural Wyoming upbringing with his friends Billy Gunn and Stuff Leong, many a nefarious scheme was foiled with six guns, ingenuity, a motorcycle, and a twirling lariat. Howdy, I'm Ranger Gord. Help me follow the trail of the Vigilante on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. And we're back to talk about seasonal reading, which for April means hashtag... Humor Comics Month. These were acquired from a variety of sources, and I'll do my best to identify those as we go. And in approximate alphabetical order, starting with, and spending a good amount of time with, Archie. And the perfect book to start with, Pep Digital Number 2, Reggie, King of April Fools. The first few stories in this collection were specifically about Reggie pulling pranks on April Fool's. Then we had a bunch about Reggie pulling pranks on other days of the year. And then the last third or so of this collection was just stories of Reggie being, you know, a jerk. And almost every time, Reggie finds himself on the receiving end of some well-deserved karma. The lesson of Reggie Mantle is the lesson that actions have consequences. And also Pep Digital 72, Betty and Veronica, Friendship Fun. All about Betty and Veronica and their great relationship, which survives many trials and tribulations, most, but not all, of an Archie variety. My favorite, the sweetest, if not the funniest, was one where Dilton made the girls bracelets that would glow green when they were in agreement with each other, when they were compatible 
and red when they were in disagreement. The lesson for B&V and for Dilton and for all of us readers was that friendship is about more than just being on the same wavelength on all topics at all times. And some miscellaneous issues from across the Archieverse, Life with Archie 260, Betty and Veronica 200. For their 200th issue, B&V did an issue-long story, 200 Things I Like About You, in which the gals break up as BFFs, but of course, that doesn't stick. And the perfect comic book title for this month, Laugh! 219, 238, 275, 276, 305, 306, and 328. Mostly from Pulp Reality and at least one from Sir Rob Lance. Many of these issues had a little jinx story in them, which definitely called the title Laugh into serious question. The best single joke in all of these was the cover of 328, which had Betty interrupting Dilton and Archie in Dilton's lab to announce that she has just built a solar-powered clothes dryer, and then showing off to them her new clothesline. That one also had a tale of education in the far future of 2001. Whoops. The events portrayed therein do not even come close to my distance or blended classes, though it did foretell some of the problems with COVID-era online schooling. It was also a funny story about Archie at Lodge Manor, where in a change of plot points, it's Veronica who doesn't want to see him, while Mr. Lodge has a delivery job for Archie, and he needs to see him in his home office. And shenanigans ensue. And also the digital version of Archie 75 Laugh Comics from a few years back when Archie was celebrating their 75th anniversary. This collects stories from Laugh Comics from across the years and was a nice historical artifact. And it does include the first story from the first issue of Laugh from 1946, which is actually Laugh Comics 20. Because comics. Uh, That's because Laugh continued the numbering from its predecessor, The Black Hood. Uh, This particular collection was uh, well-edited, well-selected. Stories from the 40s through the 90s. A solid historical collection. And some physical digests sent in by Ron Justron, who knows the truth, that digests make excellent packing material. Jughead's Double Digest 27 and 128, and Archie and Friends Double Digest 25. The Jughead's Double Digest 27 deserves a mention in particular for a fairly strange reason. Because look, when you read as many Archie collections as I do, both physical and digital, you run into stories you've read before. Every now and then, it's, it's just part of the bargain but I've never run into stories that were rerun in the same exact physical digest. Because the last 20 pages or so of this collection were exact duplicates, although weirdly 
in a somewhat different order of the 20 pages or so almost directly before those ones. So as good a job as Archie does with selecting their stories and the editing thereof, this glaring, you know, printer's error really stands out. It was very, very weird. My favorite story was from the Archie and Friends collection, and it was one I've read before. It's Archie offering his services as a leatherworking expert to anyone who wants him to restore or repair or care for their baseball mitts as spring was coming. So the sign he put up offered glove expert, satisfaction guaranteed, and he couldn't figure out why so many girls showed up at his house shortly thereafter. But we as readers know that the G in glove became spattered by mud. So it appeared that he was offering love expertise. And moving from Archie, we have a DC title, a humorous detective tale, a miniseries that I picked up all the issues of, probably at Pulp Reality. Now, I said it was from DC, which I really didn't need to because it features a super smart talking monkey, which by definition indicates that this was a DC comic. This time, that monkey is Sam Simeon, co-star of Angel and the Ape, one through four from 1991, written and drawn by Phil Folio. I'm covering this here because the art is whimsical and the story is goofy and there are a handful of legitimate jokes. And more importantly, we don't just have the ape. We have both Grodd and Solovar. And we learn the shocking truth that Grodd is Sam's father as the ape-based plot develops. I should point out that there are some more mature themes addressed here as well, such as the potential relationship between a human and an ape. My favorite bit was somewhat related to this telling of how Angel's father found a super-strong tribe of Amazons that he discovered could breed with normal men. There is an asterisk on the word discovered, and the related editor's note says, don't ask. And the crossover that finally had to happen grew meets Tarzan. One through four by Evanier and Aragonese, of course, but also with Thomas Yates drawing the Tarzan parts. So the art styles totally do not match. But that's okay, because within the book, that is called out. The folks in both styles do not understand or comprehend what the other people are. But that storyline where Gru meets Tarzan and somehow they team up to take out a gang of slavers, is only about 40% of the content of this. Because the rest is the characters of Mark Evanier and Sergio Aragones and the letterer Sam Sakai, and also the colorist, all attending San Diego Comic-Con. There, they're discussing the possibility of doing a Gru meets Tarzan crossover, and then Sergio goes to a local wildlife preserve to do some research. And he gets lost. And Evanier has to go save his best buddy, of course. But he does have dozens of panels at the con to moderate first. This one was hilarious. 
The action in both storylines was great and the meta-textuality really worked here. It doesn't always for me, but here it did. And the running gags, my favorite of which was people loving Sergio Aragonese for his career of work on Spy vs. Spy, which he in fact did not create or ever draw, which he points out to every geek who mentions this to him, except for one very pretty lady for whom he gladly does a Spy vs. Spy sketch and laughed at this one all the way through. And related, grew friends and foes, one through four. The start of a series with a loosely connected story, but each issue intersects or interacts with a particular friend or foe from Gru's history. Although, to be fair, with the exception of Faithful Referto, not really sure Gru has a lot of, you know, friends. So the characters that are featured in each of these four issues are respectively Captain Ahax, Granny Gru, the witches Arba and Dakarba, and the heroic Arcadio. It's a very diverse cast of characters, although they all have this one thing in common. They dread the arrival of Gru in their village, or their ship, or just generally in their lives. And a comic series based on a comedy web series, The Guild, 1-3, through three, written by Felicia Day who I'm pretty sure I recently saw in a commercial for a bank, so good for her. This is a prequel to that web series, telling the story of how her character, Codex, met the online game players who would become the guild, the Guild of Good. What I liked was the nerds, the players, were not the main sources of humor. It it, it was not mean-spirited against the game-playing nerds. The humor was often slice-of-life, or often at the lead character's expense in terms of being self-deprecating. So it was a nice, light, nerdy story. And a comic featuring a classic comedy team, Laurel and Hardy, 1972, number one from American Mythology, reprinting an issue from, well, 1972. I read some Three Stooges last April, and my comments here are similar and that I've not seen a bunch of Laurel and Hardy. Although, in comparison, I think I do like them more than the Stooges. And I actually think this comic was better than the Stooges issues. These stories, each one had a chuckle or two, and overall, the issue in total worked. Speaking of Gru, I guess, from the same creative team, following up on their sword and sandal success, with a take on a superhero, the Mighty Magnor, number five, from Malibu. This one takes a similarly snarky view, complete with a a similar meta-textuality regarding the comic book industry. Because Magnor, in addition to being a real hero, is also a comic book character in this world. And every time he causes damage, which is a regular occurrence, because he's a comic book character the comic book publisher gets sued. And among all that stuff, there's also a bit of advancement of an alien invasion plot. So overall, very good issue. And then one that has to be good because Laugh 
is again in the title, sort of. It's spelled with Fs. From the public domain, the entire run of Laffy Daff, which means issues one and two. The art was primitive, the coloring was primitive, and the stories were simplistic. But considering that this was the 40s, I have to say that there were very few moments of cringeworthy dialogue or art. And that's something worth mentioning, how, how few of those existed. Now, staying in the public domain from Quality Comics, another title that just says bluntly what it's trying to do. All humor comics, one through four, which weren't bad, again, considering these issues were nearly 80 years old, much better than the Laffy Daff issues. My favorite repeat feature was the lead feature in the first two uh, issues, Odd Jobs, Inc., a business enterprise promising, well, to do just about anything. And the star of the strip, Hennessy P. Eggnog, finds himself tasked with a series of wacky tasks and his attempt to fulfill his odd job responsibilities fail regularly in pretty funny ways. Other features that worked for me more or less included Atomic Tot and Kelly Pool, And another I liked, though clearly a knockoff, Giddy Goose wasn't bad. He's no Daffy Duck, but he wasn't bad. And mention must be made to one page that appeared in, I think, at least three of these issues. And that is Pepsi and the Pepsi-Cola Cop. That's right. A good quarter century before Hostess ads were ever even conceived of, Pepsi, legally mandated disclosure. For many decades, Professor Allen has owned stock in PepsiCo, the multinational company that produces his favorite flavors of soda pop. Pepsi did a comic book style ad for its products appearing in comic books. And this one, in a snowy landscape, a pair of police officers, one smart enough to be wearing snowshoes, take down a bear with the help of a big Pepsi-Cola. Pepsi says, try Pepsi-Cola. It's a bear for flavor. In the classic magazine, eh, not technically a comic book, I suppose, magazine of humor, Mad Magazine 364, 424, and 532, representing books from over a 20-year period or so. One of the things I did last year, about a year ago actually, really helped me appreciate MAD. And that was covering on the quarter bin an issue of Not Brand Ech. Because even the least funny bits of MAD are way better than about every bit of NBE. Humor is hard. Continuous humor is hard. But I really think that more often than not, these tended to hit. Not the movie parodies. Those were pretty borderline. Maybe they lose their power with age more quickly than some of the other bits. But the lighter side and various other bits often worked. My favorite was a list of crime statistics that went along with one article. 19% of small towns in the U.S. have had crimes routinely solved by a plucky amateur sleuth with the reluctant help of the local sheriff. 100% fewer stagecoach robberies have occurred since the 19th century 
but the federal government still pours millions of dollars into its prevention at the insistence of senators from Oklahoma and Wyoming. And 50% of mail fraud emanates from East Virginia and West Dakota. And wrapping up one of the great humor titles from the last decade or so, Scooby-Doo Team-Up, 37 through 50. These issues included team-ups with Blue Falcon, Supergirl, Penelope Pitstop, Swamp Thing, Metamorpho, Dastardly and Muttley, Barda and Scott Free, and even the Flash Rogues. The Supergirl story was easily the funniest, and yes, I did check in with Dr. Ange, and he approved, agreeing that it was a very good issue, lots of great bits, including the Streaky versus Scooby-Doo and Running Feud. The Blue Falcon issue had a good story as well with a running bit. How he and Dynamut were so similar to Batman and Robin, to which they always replied, Bat who? Issue 43 deserves a mention because, as we pointed out a few minutes ago, it's not really a DC book until a super smart giant monkey shows up. And in this issue, they all do. Grodd. Titano, Detective Chimp, Sam Simeon, and the Gorilla Gangster, even the Ultra-Humanite. And if all that monkey goodness wasn't enough, just when he thought every DC monkey was already in the story, who arrives on the last panel, apologizing for being late? Beppo, the Super Monkey. Wonderful. And a few issues later, when the team meets Magilla Gorilla, they were prepared for working with a big monkey. The trip to Apocalypse was great. Velma and Daphne get drafted into the female Furies. Fred learns that Darkseid's monsters are a little bit worse than real estate developers. And Shaggy learns from Granny Goodness that maybe you can't always judge someone by their name. This series wrapped up with issue 50, a delightful crisis-style story with Batman's and Scooby gangs from multiple Earths meeting and interacting. And yes, of course, Batmite was involved. I really enjoyed this title start to finish, finding it consistently good, consistently funny. Scooby-Doo team-up. Excellent work from Shally Fish and Dario Brizuela. And one of the best-known and beloved titles of the 60s, Sugar and Spike 81, which totally missed the mark for me. The kids and their families get transported to a Central American dictatorship, and that is not good on many levels. I think the lesson for me overall with this one is that Sugar and Spike is no Stanley and his monster, because that book is usually pretty funny. So, all right, that was a pretty solid and varied collection of humorous comics. Humor is hard, and I have to admit, not every attempt uh, hit the mark. Next month, we'll see quite a change of pace. As for May, we'll do some hashtag crime comics month reading. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of April... Starting with the humor books, Gru and Scooby-Doo Team-Up stand out for their excellence 
in working humor into the plots, into the stories, as well as having, you know, standalone jokes. Postal continues to be good. Nexus, Terminal Hero were solid. But in terms of my absolute favorites, we say it here a lot, endings are hard. And I wrapped up two current series this month, and one of those really stood out for both wrapping up the series with an interesting issue, but this is also a bit of a Lifetime Achievement Award for how much I liked the whole series. But I'm going to say 8 Billion Genies, number 8, my favorite read of the month. Next month, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be reading other than some crime books for May. Hopefully, some Brubaker and Phillips. Hopefully, some Sherlock Holmes. But other than that, who knows? But whatever I do end up reading, I will be here to talk about the books that I read in May. And that will be in an episode out in early June. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of these books that I mentioned. You can send that feedback via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com, or as a comment on the Facebook or blog post for the episode. The blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And, of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening, and keep the pages turning.